0: Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. Then he arose from there and came to the region of Judea by the other side of the Jordan, and multitudes gathered to him again. And as he was accustomed, he taught them again. The Pharisees came and asked him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife, testing him? And he answered and said to them, What did Moses command you? They said Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and to dismiss her. And Jesus answered and said to them, because of the hardness of your heart, He wrote you this precept. But from the beginning of the creation, God made the male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. In the house, His disciples also asked Him again about the same matter. So He said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if a woman divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Then they brought little children to him that he might touch them, but the disciples rebuked those who brought them. But when Jesus saw it, he was greatly displeased and said to them, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them for of such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly I say to you whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it and he took them up in his arms and his hands on them put his hands on them and blessed them now as he was going out on the road one came running knelt before him and asked him good teacher what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life so Jesus said to him why do you call me good no one is good but one that is God you know the commandments do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not, be, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. And he answered and said to him, teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. Then Jesus, looked, at, looking at him, loved him and said to him, one thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come take up the cross and follow me. But he was sad at this word and went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard is it for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were greatly astonished, saying among themselves, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With men it is impossible, but not with God. For with God all things are possible. Then Peter began to say to him, See, we have left all and followed you. So Jesus answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Let's pray together. Lord, we yield our hearts to you. We thank you for you how you've already been ministering to us lord in our hearts to minister to you and it we see all through your word how people desired to minister to you and then you spoke lord we see that in acts 13 and we're grateful lord for your word and revealing that so lord we thank you for you speaking and comforting we thank you for your presence here we thank you how you've interrupted things and comforted us and encouraged us lord we pray that you would use your word now for your purposes we commit it to you in jesus name Amen. Please be seated. Well, we've been looking at the last few months of the Lord Jesus's public ministry. We have seen him set his face steadfastly towards Jerusalem. He has those exact words in the Gospel of Luke by the Holy Spirit. And we'll see that when we get to Luke in the next book in a, few weeks or months, however long. it's Not the millennium. It's not going to take that long. But we will get there uh, soon. I promise you that. So He's setting His face towards Jerusalem. We see that at Caesarea Philippi, as is revealed in every one of the four Gospels, that at Caesarea Philippi, He starts focusing on the cross. And He starts setting His face towards Jerusalem. It hadn't been His time up to this point, but now it's His time to start going that direction there. And so we see him there at of Philippi, he said, Who do men say that I am? The Apostle Peter said, You are the Christ, the Son of the Living God, talking about his confession of faith later being the foundation upon which the church would be built, the fact that Jesus is the Messiah, and so forth. And then as he prepares his disciples for his departure, he focuses on just on the cross. And he focuses on plain you know, strictly telling them or plainly telling them, we're told, about Him dying, being betrayed and so forth, and, and after three days raising from the dead. He's going to continue that today. We'll see that. But we also see as He's facing Jerusalem and He's heading his back south now because Caesarea Philippi is north of Israel and He's going to head back to Jerusalem and start making His way. We're going to see Him continue to minister. We're going to see him continue to be who he is. He can't stop being who he is. Aren't you encouraged about that? I love the fact that he doesn't change. He's immutable, and he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's the same Jesus. He loves people. He cares about people. And he. And, and when you think about the fact that he's, um, has the cross in his sights, it becomes even more amazing. I do want to mention that there are thousands of people at this point traveling for the Feast of Passover. So they're coming from all over the place. There were three feasts that the, every male Jew uh, over a certain age, I believe 13 and over, had to attend uh, three feasts a year. And this is one of them. And so there, there is that context of lots of people traveling. They're traveling these roads. There's lots of people around. And, and that kind of sets the stage for what we'll see in a few moments. But He just continues to be who He is. He's continuing to minister to people. He's continuing to love people, to heal people, deliver people, to teach people. And again, how much more amazing is that knowing that He's doing that with the cross in His sights? The people that He's serving, the people that He's healing, the people that He's delivering, all these things, those people's sins are going to be laid upon Him When the wrath of God is being poured out on Him for the propitiation of our sins, the full and satisfying payment for the forgiveness of our sins are laid upon Him, those same people He is serving and reaching out to and caring for and all of that. In addition, these Pharisees, He's going to die for their sins too. And the the people that are attacking Him and all of these things. It just makes you more in awe of His great heart to think that he's doing that in the context of this cross that's coming up, that's at the focal point of his life right now. On the Mount of Transfiguration, we saw last week that Moses and Elijah were speaking to him about, what he would, about his departure, about his being cut off in the sense of fulfilling Daniel's prophecy of being cut off, that the Messiah would be cut off but not for himself, for us. So here... The Lord Jesus is serving and ministering. And it just helps us to recognize that so often God still wants to use us in the context of suffering and the context of difficulty. He still wants to use us. Some of the greatest ministry opportunities show themselves and reveal themselves in the context of our trials. And we think, oh, no, God would never do that. He'd never want me to give out in the context of suffering and going through difficulty. And some of the most potent times where we're so emptied out and we're so yielded to him and his Holy Spirit, those are the best times for ministry. Those are the most potent times of ministry when we're hurting and we're suffering because we're at our weakest and we're the most dependent upon him. What other time could we be more available and more uh, dependent so that He can work through our lives when we are struggling? And here Jesus is modeling that. His his great heart for people as He's facing that cross, that certain future. Verse 1, "...then He arose from there and came to the region of Judea by the other side of the Jordan. And multitudes gathered to Him again, and and as He was accustomed, he taught them again. So we're told He's in the region of Judea by the other side of the Jordan. This is the east side. East side. This is the east side of, of Israel there. On the east side of the Jordan. They were in the north. And so they crossed over, around, and down, and all of that. And that was the, there was a road there. There's still a road there today. When you drive from the north... And you go down to the Dead Sea in the extreme south. You go on the east side of the country there. That's the old traditional path. And they'd make their way. And the the main reason is that they didn't want to go through Samaria because they had prejudice against them. Uh, And they were considered half-breeds or they're not true Jews and all of that. And so they would avoid that area. Now we've seen already, and we'll see it in John where he needs to go through Samaria and he's starting to reveal God's heart for the Samaritans there. And there's a great harvest there. But this would be the main thoroughfare that people would travel to get to Jerusalem there. So that's why they're there. And again, when it talks about this, the multitudes gathered to him again, the reason why these multitudes were there in large part was because people were traveling for the feast to come up to that feast there. And I mean, he doesn't need a feast for get multitudes to gather to him. We've seen that. But this is a very desolate area there over by Jericho on the east side. And look what we see him doing there at the end of verse 1. And he was accustomed. He taught them again. And this is something that we see over and over. And, when, and it's, you kind of notice it when you start focusing more on the importance of the Word of God and, and the Word of God being taught. I remember when I first came to Calvary Chapel in 1995, I remember having this, for the first time, this so much emphasis on the teaching of God's Word that I started seeing all the times where Jesus was teaching the Word and and, and teaching, and I never noticed it before. How many of you are in that category where maybe you didn't notice it before and then you started seeing it? I'm one of them. I guess I'm the only one. That's okay. I'm there's a lot of exceptions for me on things. But uh, you know, he taught them again. Notice it he was accustomed. This was something it was practice, his normal practice. And it notice the word again. You know, it was normal for him to teach the multitudes. He wanted them to know truth. He's talking about the kingdom of God. He's 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 helping them with that understanding. Now we're told in scripture in John 8:31, it's actually the theme verse of our church. If you abide in my word, you're my disciples indeed. And so as we abide in his word, we prove that we're his disciples because disciples remain in his word and dwell. That's what the word abide means, to dwell, to make our home in his word every single day. Jesus knows every disciple of his needs a steady, consistent diet of the Word of God. Yes, you can go on a diet and have it build you up spiritually, but it's a spiritual diet. Jesus said, man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And so you would never think that you needed to—you would be healthy if you ate once a week or once a month. You'd never ever think in a million years you'd be healthy. But it's the same way with God's Word. Why would we think we're going to be spiritually healthy if we have a weekly diet? or a monthly diet, or a yearly diet, or a holiday diet, as some people do. Only on Christmas and Easter and all of this. But God wants us to continue to grow. Sometimes when believers, especially newer believers, but any kind of believer, comes to me or other leaders and say, you know, I'm not really growing. One of the first questions I ask them is, describe your devotional life to me. And I, don't, I was taught purposely to not ask do you have a devotional life? Because it's, you get more information when you say describe it. Because yes, that answer yes can mean a lot of different things. But if they think they're having a devotional life but every three months they're opening up their Bible to, to, uh, to Jude and re- reading, you know, I read a whole book of the Bible every three months, you know, <laughs> and it's a chapter long, you know. And, and so, but it, it helps to kind of understand what's going on. What's your devotional life like? It's important for us. Now, notice the Pharisees, they they kind of of, um, roll up their sleeves, so to speak, um, and they're going to attack Him and they're going to lay a trap here. And so they want to trap Him. They want to get Him to look bad. They want to get Him kind of entangled or ensnared in a controversy. And that's a really good way to get someone to look bad. (laughs) <laughs> is to get involved in a controversy, right? I mean, Facebook, come on. You can get involved in all kinds of, of controversies and debates, and I, I wasted a lot of time in the early years of Facebook debating. No fruit from it. Absolutely no fruit. You know, we should be, and it's just a general healthy thing for us, we should be in, in the book before we get on Facebook. I think. Or like we should, before we get on Snapchat, we should chat, you know, with with God or whatever. It's a good rule before you engage the rest of the world, especially in controversies and debates and all these things, to spend time with him. And I couldn't get anything to rhyme with Instagram. That's how lame I am. See, I just, there's limits to my attempts on how to be cool. I just can't do it. I can't, I can't, uh, you know, that's okay. I am who I am. But sometimes we want to be connected to everybody except him. And He wants that secret place. It's just a confirmation of this passage here. He wants us to go to the secret place, to be alone with Him. So now we see this testing in verse 2. This Pharisees came and asked Him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Testing him. Now this was a debate in Jesus' day. And it was a debate before He started His public ministry. It been going on for quite a while. And this debate, this question—it's interesting that this is asked here because it's in the area of Perea, where Herod Antipas' fortress was. And John the Baptist is the one who questioned him on how, why he was sleeping with his his brother's wife. So it's very fitting that this question is dealt with here. And there were two major views. There was Rabbi Hillel that basically said you can divorce your wife for any reason whatsoever. She burns a dinner, you know. She insults your in-laws or your parents, you know, her in-laws. Uh, I'm not kidding. Or she goes out with uh, her head not covered, immediately write a certificate of divorce, you're gone. That was the more liberal view. But there was also Rabbi Shimei who actually attempted to go by the Word of God that talked about it having to be related to uncleanness or something related to sexual immorality. And so there was this debate. And this is perfect. You have crowds around. You have the Lord Jesus getting brought into this little controversy here. And and the Pharisees know no matter what side he lands on, he's going to be wrong to somebody. And that's what instigators do. They cause division. They get controversy going. And they try to make you look bad. And that's exactly what they're they're trying to do. Now, Jesus answers their question in verse 3. And he answered and said to them, What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and to dismiss her. Now hold your place here and turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 24 and let's read what they're referring to. I want you to see it with your own eyes here. Deuteronomy 24, fifth book in the Bible. Okay, let's read beginning in verse one. Deuteronomy twenty four, verse one. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes, because he has found some uncleanness in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of the house. When she has departed from his house and goes on and becomes another man's wife, if the latter husband detests her and writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies who took her as his wife, then her former husband who divorced her must not take her back to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. You can turn back to Mark 10. So they quote Moses here. Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and dis- to dismiss her. And what's important is that Jesus sheds some light on this. And the New Testament does in general with the Old Testament. The New Testament makes the Old Testament clearer. And then the old saying goes the, the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed, and the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. So when you're in the Old Testament, you can see the New Testament hidden in there. But when you get to the New Testament, then it really illuminates the Old Testament helps you really understand what was going on. And, and, and Jesus here is, is laying everything out. He says in, uh, in verse 5, And Jesus answered and said to them, Because of the hardness of your heart, He wrote you this precept. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Boy, do we need verse 6 more than ever. Seriously. I mean, we need the clarity of God's word. He made them male and female. Verse seven For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they have no they, they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. In the house in the house his disciples also asked him again about the same matter. I bet they did. And so he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if a woman divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. So when we enter into marriage, we, as I say this when I officiate a wedding, we enter into a sacred union. It's sacred. And all that really, I mean, all that goes with it is is so much. Because God's opinion is that it's, Something that he came up with. He has a plan for it. He knows how marriages are supposed to function. He 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 knows. And so he looked at man in the garden, and said, "That's not good <laughs> to be alone. That's definitely not a good picture right there." He needs a helper. Um, sometimes when men husbands get an attitude about men, uh, women being their helpmate, it just when they point to them being a helpmate in, in, inappropriately. They're, what they're really saying is that they're incomplete. You know, that, that, that's the thing. It's, it's beautiful because both are important, both are needed, both are valued to make that picture complete. And God gives us the capacity, to some people, the capacity to be celibate. And, and, and that's a gift from God. And so he, He's gifted certain people with that gift because apart from that gift, they're not going to function very well with how they are and their natural how they naturally are so god has to supernaturally compensate and gift a person to, to have that life you know and paul mentions you know if you're married don't pray to be different if you're single don't pray to be different in the sense of being content not that you can't pray but to be content and 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 be fruitful where where you are how you are and all those things and he will compensate because he says you don't have to look for it because I'll bring it when if that's supposed to happen I will bring it um, bring that person your direction so once we're married the two have become one flesh a spiritual one flesh obviously physically that is that is represented in the relationship but it's a spiritual one flesh there they're one spiritual unit and so the beautiful thing about marriage, as most of us know, is that it reflects our relationship with Christ. You know, Ephesians 5 talks about that. Because we're the bride of Christ. He's the bridegroom. And in Revelation, we're told, as we went through the book of Revelation, Revelation, we saw that there's a point at which He calls us the wife. He doesn't call us the wife yet. That's coming. But we're betrothed. And in a Jewish culture, that was, that was marriage in, the, in, in a sense where you'd have to get a divorce. And so that, but they would, there would be a time in between that betrothal and the time where you are married, in the sense where you culminate or consummate that, that marriage and so forth. And so it, it's a beautiful picture because our, our marriage relationships, those of us that are married, it represents our, the church's relationship with Christ. And it's beautiful. It's a beautiful picture, and it's a valuable picture that the world needs to see. So if anybody, and it's sad, and, and I don't know if this is professing Christianity versus real born-again believers, but you know the statistics are that there's 50% divorce rate both in the world and in, and in professing Christianity, which should never be. And if you're here and you've gone through that, I'm not heaping condemnation on you. I realize there's all kinds of different circumstances and so forth, and before Christ, after Christ, and all of those things, and, and many people are victims of that, and I recognize that. So, I'm not heaping condemnation or anything on you. I'm just explaining that Jesus is talking about the sanctity of marriage, and how. And right now in our culture, it's being attacked through genity uh, to genit not not genity um, gender. There we go. Through gender identity issues with people and disorders. Genety, um, better not say that because better. Back up here. So gender disorder. There we go. But he's always trying to attack the family. He's always trying to attack marriages and so forth. And we have to be very careful because when we're married, obviously since we're representing that relationship with him especially, that the enemy is going to try to attack our marriages. And he's going to try really, really hard. We pray regularly. I mean really regularly (laughs) for the marriages in our church. And, and so forth and and so, through the, our sinful natures though, being selfish and not functioning in the biblical roles that God has called us to, and using the wisdom and the power and the grace that he's called us to walk in those things, we allow Satan to have a foothold and we're not called to do that. so that's why we're always encouraging people to walk in their biblical roles now I've done a fair amount of marriage counseling, and what I try to do according to Ephesians chapter five is try to help each spouse focus on what their God-given role is and to focus on doing that by God's grace regardless of what the other person does. Because I've heard this before. I'm not doing my role till they start doing their role. That's not biblical. Because our role is supposed to be done and obeyed and walked in regardless of what that other person does. It's, it's connected to the lordship issue of our lives because we're going to obey him no matter what people do or don't do because that's dependent independent of that obviously it makes it less tempting when the other person to do wrong if the other person is doing their role and it does help obviously when you see the other person walking in that but i have people come in and they're laying out this whole long thing that they think it's going to take years to unravel this big complicated situation and they and they think it's soup like i'm going to have to go and go in deep research and call up my pastor friends and get books and like this is super, super complicated. And I've seen those marriages turn around in hours when they start submitting to God in their relationship with him and obeying their biblical roles regardless of what the other person does, put the other person first and be selfless. Because really, as I said, marriage problems are lordship problems and lordship problems are, are, have to do with our walk with the Lord each and every day. Because if we're doing our, our walking with Him, closely with Him in the secret place and seeking Him and all of those things, then selfishness start, starts to not mark our lives. Being other-centered starts to mark our lives. And it's very hard to have marital conflict when each person is being other-centered. I can't take it. Pastor, I'm going to get a divorce. He, he loves me too much as Christ of the church. I'm done. It's over. Never seen it. Never seen the husband say, can't handle it anymore. She respects me too much. She submits to my leadership too much. I can't hang anymore. I'm out. It doesn't happen. They serve me too much. I can't take it anymore. Would you tell them to stop serving me and putting me first? Never seen it. See, the Bible doesn't actually say a lot about marriage in the sense of how to walk in Christian marriage. I mean, it has some significant things. But what it does have a lot to say about is being other-centered and having the fruit of the Spirit coming forth from my, li- from my life. And what I've said many times is the fruit of the Spirit is not supremely for our benefit. No fruit is supremely for the tree's benefit. It's for other people to enjoy. We are so self-consumed and self-centered, we think it's supremely for our, oh, love, joy, peace, I have peace, I have joy, I have love, and it's all for me, it's all for me, it's all for me. No, that was almost a dance. It's all for me. It's not. It's for other people to enjoy, supremely for God to enjoy. He enjoys that fruit that He produces through our lives. He gets the first fruits. But then as we give our lives away and we're other-centered, other people come and get to enjoy that beautiful fruit. You know, in the summertime, especially around here, when you have the peaches that are brand new coming off the trees and the farmer's markets and all of that, it's just a beautiful sight. It's a beautiful smell. It tastes good. There's nothing about those things. The only thing that's different with the fruit of the Spirit coming out is that it's free for the other person. You don't have to pay for it. We have to pay for our fruit. Hope <laughs> well, maybe you don't. You have an arrangement with the farmer or something. I don't know. I used to take a lady. I used to take a lady's. This is no joke. I'm not exaggerating one bit. I used to take a lady's garbage out when I was ten across the street, who was elderly, and she paid me with a peach from her backyard, and I was thankful for that peach. So you may get free fruit, fruit but in terms of the fruit of the spirit, it's free. We get to enjoy it. And when we're not around other believers who are not walking in the Spirit, we're robbed of it. And when we're not walking in it, we're, we're robbing them of it. And it's, So if we do that, I'm telling you, it's not complicated. Just surrender your life to Christ and have that daily time with Him and be other-centered with everyone you come in contact with and then you're going to get along great with coworkers, people in school, your spouse, your children. Like It takes care of everything. It's almost like he thought of everything. He did. He thought... Of everything. It's beautiful. The yielded life is a beautiful life. Holiness is its own reward. But it's mainly for God and mainly for others. So it's a beautiful picture. Now, there are two ways that God allows for divorce. And Paul talks about the first way in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And it's, it's abandonment. So if you are not a believer when you get married and your spouse is not a believer, let's say... And you, one of you receive Christ. And they don't want to remain with you. And they want to leave because you're a Christian. And that happens. It, the Word says, Paul by the Spirit says that we're free. That he hasn't called us to anything but freedom with that. So we're free in that sense. But that's a unique situation. Mainly we're talking about the other way. And that's talking about marital unfaithfulness. And the word that he uses there, especially I think it's in Matthew, is the word porneia. And we get our word pornography from it. And it's a general word. It's not a very specific, laser targeted word. And we think that it means just like marital and faithfulness with sexual intercourse, but it's more broad than that. It's any sex outside of marriage with another person. That's grounds for divorce. Some people try to split hairs with all of that, and no. The word is broad on purpose. He used that word on purpose, but it needs to be with another person. And it has to be outside of the marriage. And so that's, that's a horrible situation when it happens. Some of you are victims of that, I'm sure. And so God allows for divorce. Now, the one thing I want, to do, I want to mention here is that He doesn't command divorce. I've heard people say, oh, God wants me to get divorced now because, nope, didn't say that. He hates divorce, yes. He hates it. And, and He knows that for some people, depending on what's happened and our temperament and who we are, that if that happens to us and we're a victim or our spouse does that that it's not a matter of forgiveness because we have to forgive no matter what it has to do with just living into the the thought of that that we are not some people are not wired for that in that way now with god all things are possible so god could tell you yes you're not you're not wired that way but i'm going to give you grace and you're going to be as if you are wired for that that's a whole nother thing but the, but you don't have to get a divorce there's many many marriages that have survived that because the person chose to forgave and relied upon God's grace and, and if that's you I mean that's a, I mean we know it's God's grace that allows for that to happen so if you don't have biblical grounds aren't you glad that you came this morning this is perky huh this is like a, a great cheerful thing but you know it's, it's in God's words it's important so we need to deal with it and by the way we're not can't deal with every situation obviously you can come to me afterwards and I'll I'll point you to Reuben. But anyway, so <laughs> if Dave were here, I'd be he's my he's my guy that I beat up on. I'm from the pulpit. So but he's not here, so I have to use uh, the the bench. So but if if someone if someone divorces somebody and they don't have biblical grounds, when they marry someone else, they commit adultery. Now, if that happens and the other person is not remarried, the other person, so let's say you, let's say your spouse. Divorces you and doesn't have biblical grounds because you didn't commit any kind of sexual morality there, and they and they get remarried. As long as you're not married, then they could divorce that person and come back to you. Now, if it's remarriage there in the sense of, I mean, when you, when you do the remarriage part of that and you commit adultery, it's a sin, okay. And then, but if you uh, if the other person is a, you're a victim of that, and the other person remarries, and you have no capacity to reconcile with them, then God, you need to ask. They need to ask God forgiveness and all of those things, and 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 then God can make those things right. And so, if both remarry and their new their new spouses, they need to repent of that adultery. But their new spouses, of, if they're locked, they're locked in a sense of of. That new marriage relationship. And so there can be remarriage, even when we mess up and make mistakes and all of that. Once you get the remarriage happens, you know um, that's, it's, God's not going to unravel marriage after marriage and family after family, all these, these things. It's, it needs to be repented of and all of that. And there's another instance when you're an unbeliever before, and all these things happen and, and everything. That's a whole nother discussion. But the point is, he wants us to not harden our hearts. I want to get back to the main point here, is that he said that's the reason why Moses allowed it. And of course, Moses didn't do anything apart from the Lord. He was led by the Lord with all these things and what he wrote his Scripture and all of that. So it's because of the hardness of their hearts. He said in the beginning it was not so. So the, 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 the danger excuse me, for us is that we would have a hardened heart. And that's the thing that catches people off guard. I've seen it many times. And let me just point a picture to you. And I hope some of the men that aren't here will listen to this after. And those of you that are listening, to podcasts, or whatever, you'll hear this. But so the, the the men are often caught off guard by this. They neglect their wife. Men, your wives are like a flower that need to be nurtured. It's the best word picture that you can come up with. I, I haven't heard of a better one. They have to be nurtured. They have to be cared for. They have to be. Loved, and they have. You can't neglect them. And I've seen men neglect. I've seen it the other way too. Spouses reverse, but usually it's men neglecting their wives and seeing their wives as a roommate. And I've done, and I've been guilty myself, where you just get used to living with someone, and there's no intimacy. And before you know it, you're just the neglect turns into like you're you're basically a roommate. We can allow that to happen, and sometimes the men erroneously think that it's not really affecting their wives. and Even if their wives have brought it up over and over and over again, and then there comes a point many times where they stop bringing it up. And the men think, oh, okay, she's gotten used to this arrangement that I'm comfortable with. She's good, and she's not good. And over weeks and months, I've even seen years, she slowly and slowly disconnects her heart. She's oftentimes listening to ungodly counsel. And it's true not just for wives. Men do that too, obviously. But they're listening to ungodly counsel. And the world will say, you need to put yourself first. If you don't look out for you, who else is going to look out for you? And God wants you to be happy and all these things. And we're told in Psalm 1 to not, not listen to the counsel of the ungodly. God's Word is still God's Word. But you have weeks and months of pain and suffering and neglect and all these things. And just you're miserable and you feel trapped. And all the, I've gone extensive counseling with people with this. And and then you just give up all hope and then you you have these un, this ungodly counsel that's coming in and it just erodes and erodes faith in God's word. And before you know it, you they've they played this whole thing out and planned this whole thing out. The men are so surprised. They can't believe this happened. Their Their heads are spinning. They're so shocked that this has happened to them, that their wives left and they think it's been some kind of sudden decision. No, it's been simmering for months and months and months because of your neglect. And God says, don't do it. Don't harden your heart and and start being inappropriate in that way with your spouse. And wives, don't let that happen. Don't harden your heart. and let It doesn't excuse. I'm not excusing any bad behavior. But don't let your heart get hardened over time. Go to prayer. Go to counsel. People say, I've done that. I've done that. Nothing's worked. Nothing's worked. God's word is God's word. You're saying that God's grace isn't sufficient to help you and help you suffer in the sense of doing what's right and, and standing up for what's right in His Word and taking a stand, even though things are incredibly difficult and hard. And, and He just calls us to difficulty. He just calls us to, to trials. And, and it's important for us to know, that's why we have books on marriage there that are so good, like Sacred Marriage talking about that marriage is, su- is not supremely for your happiness. Nothing in our lives are supremely for us as Christians. They're supremely for God and other people. Our marriage is not, is not some endless reservoir of things I can pull out of it to get all these things for myself. Our marriage is supremely for God to enjoy because it reflects our relationship with Him and it's supremely for us to give. And if someone has talked about this, as like a box where you put things in and you pull things out and you can't pull anything out until you put something in first. And marriage is like that in so many ways. But if we're just focused on serving the other person and caring for the other person, we won't have to worry about our needs being met. It'll happen indirectly. But if we focus on them, focusing on, I'm going to have my wife or my husband, I'm going to serve them better than anyone serves them in this planet. I'm going to put them first. And and, and I have plenty of areas where I fall short. But One of the things that God's helped me with is try to put my wife first in things like, the car who drives the better car who you know put her my kids have seen that and they see me fall short in other areas i'm being honest with you but but to put her first in everything what what choice of meat you get the best pick of the food honey what would you like what steak would you like or what whatever it is and putting them first all the time and honoring them man i tell you you cannot have a you want to be your wife's the husband of her dreams and that only happens through service And love and putting her first above your own needs. And it's beautiful when it happens. So that's the exhortation here and then the encouragement for us. I know it's hard at times, but so often marriage reveals what's really there that we have to let God deal with. You know, you've heard it said when you don't know what's in a cup till you bump it sometimes. You know, we don't realize. I didn't realize how selfish I was. I've been like, so next month it'll be. 22 years, 23 years? Yeah, I gotta get that right. See, that's part of that. <laughs> so, it's one of those. It's been almost a quarter century. So, but you know, we, we have to recognize that they're the one that God has provided for us, and, and, our, and, and it's gonna be hard at times, and we're gonna realize how selfish we are. It's gonna reveal things. Does dishes go in the sink. No, they don't. They go on the counter. What? No, they have to go in the sink. No, they have to go on the counter when you first get married. This is all hypothetical stuff, by the way. It's not like personal, like, you know. But there's, it's like you think you have to have everything done. Like, there's only one way to do this. Why would you even bring up another way to do it? And you realize how selfish you are and when someone's living that close, and, and then you're called to serve them and care for them and, and, and put their needs above yours. You know, men, you're supposed to love your wives as Christ loved the church. And I don't think there's any man in this world that can do that totally, obviously. But he wants us to continue to grow, continue to grow. And and we always talk about submission to the husband with the wives, and that's super hard, and it is. I wouldn't want to submit to me, <laughs> you know, unless I'm led by the Spirit on that particular moment or day or whatever. But I mean, but the, the thing is, loving your wives, trying to love them as Christ loved the church. That's one thing that the media never brings up. They love to bring up the submission part, how oppressive that is, and how dated it is, and all that. They don't bring up the other thing. That we have to love our wives as Christ loved the church. It's beautiful when it's done biblically. Verse thirteen. Then they brought little children to him that he might touch them, but the disciples rebuked those who brought them. There they go with their ministry of sending people away, fighting who's the greatest, and you know, and, and all these things. They they have a ministry of sending needy people away, feeding of the 5,000, 4,000, send them away, Jesus. And here he, the parents. This has to be the parents. They that brought little children to him, that they might touch them, that he might touch them. But the disciples rebuked those who brought them. It's amazing. But when Jesus saw it, he was greatly displeased. And this literally means in the original language to be angry with indignation. This is he was hot, as we would say. He was hot at this. He was very upset. Greatly displeased. And it's the only time we see him this upset with the disciples. And they had plenty of opportunity. Trust me, we've seen that. And he said to them, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. You know, children are not insecure about their worth. They just accept that they should be in front of you. They should be the recipient of your blessings. Not that they think there's something great, but they're just who they are. Children, um, they don't they don't question heaven. I saw, heard someone say, uh, they were talking to their child, and they were talking about, you know, there's a heaven. And they're like, oh, is there playtime there? You know, it wasn't even that. They didn't say, oh, are you sure there's a heaven or not? Maybe there's not a heaven. It was like, oh, good. Is there playtime there? I mean, they just accept it. And that's what we have to do when we humble ourselves before God. When we come to Him as a little child, just completely humble and and receive Jesus. Now we see a contrast (laughs) um, in verse 17. But verse 16, he says, and He took them up in His arms. Mark only tells us that. Put His hands on them and blessed them. Beautiful. So now this contrast in verse 17. We're going to see the rich young ruler as he's called, he's wealthy, he's young, he has power. What else do you want? I mean, that's, that's, he's got it all together. If you look at him, you would say, this guy is the ultimate. Uh, he has everything going for him. And we're told in verse 17, now as he was going on the road, one came running, running, knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what shall I do? Notice that word do. What shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And this is what Jesus said. He said, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. Now the cults love this verse because they try to show that Jesus isn't divine. But what Jesus is saying is He's not saying He's not God. He's saying good and God go together. So if you call me good, you better be prepared to call me God. Are you sure you're understanding what you're asking here, what you're saying? Because I'm, if I'm good enough to be good, I'm good enough to be God. And so he answers that in verse 19, he says, "You know the commandments: do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother." What's interesting is that he only brought up the commandments that deal with us interacting with our fellow man. Did you see that? He didn't deal with the, the, the fact of our relationship because the commandments go like this and they go like this. How do I mean cross? And we have this, these commandments that have to do with loving God and serving Him, and we have commandments about other people. But He only brought up the ones because He's going to expose something. He could have just said, "What about these commandments and these commandments and these commandments?" And but He wanted Him to He went beyond that. He showed Him what He must do so that what he, the practical instruction would have the effect in, in Him, where He would come to the own, His own conclusion. Because I guarantee you, this young man is going to know the commandments that doesn't line up in his heart, when he's told what to do. Now, one of the things that can confuse people is he's going to tell them to sell everything, is that, well, isn't Jesus saying you can earn salvation? No, what he's doing is he's removing, he's not saying you can be saved by the Ten Commandments. We know that. But he's, what he's saying is he's exposing an idol that this man had. He's exposing this man's heart, this idol, and that's what he needed to forsake. Because repentance is preparing our heart to receive the gift of salvation. Just like John the Baptist prepared the Jewish people for the gift of Jesus Christ and the Gospel and the Kingdom by preparing their hearts by by uh, repentance there with the the baptism of repentance. So for, for us, looking into all these things and seeing how Jesus deals with people and all of that, sometimes the Holy Spirit will give us information about a person when we're sharing and he'll say he'll ask us to talk about repentance in that way and 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 not that they have to earn something but he's exposing an idol there and then god will show us how we should introduce the gospel because the gospel is always going to be the key but notice in verse 21 then jesus looking at him loved him notice that loved him jesus loved this man and said to him one thing you lack and that says a bunch of things one thing, because there's one issue. It's covetousness. He didn't mention that commandment. <laughs> uh, go your way, sell whatever you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, take up the cross and follow me. But he was sad at this word and went away sorrowful for he had great possession. So again, Jesus knew the heart. He knew that was the issue, but Jesus loved him. And Jesus told him the truth. There's no greater form of love in terms of someone not being saved than preaching the Gospel to them and telling them the truth and having the Lord expose any idols that's there and helping them understand repentance. So he says something different to every person. For this man, it was riches. But for someone else, it could be relationships. Or it could be drugs. Or it could be whatever it is they think that they need to make it in life. He says, be willing to give that up and turn to me to be able to receive, to properly receive that gift of eternal life. Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard is it for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God? And the disciples were astonished at his words, but Jesus answered again and said to them, children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. They're in shock. In that culture and in some places in our culture, spiritually, people think that if you're, if you're not financially blessed, there's something wrong. You have sin in your life. And if you are blessed, that means that's a, a sign of divine blessing. And the Old Testament did talk about faithfulness and all of that and working hard and, and, and all these things and everything. But in terms of salvation, there's no amount of monetary blessing or prosperity that can obviously earn eternal life. Verse 25, "...it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God, this word for needle is the they use this needle for clothing. Luke uses the word for a surgical needle, being a physician. There's no there's no eye of the needle gate. That's a tradition that's been carried down from the Middle Ages. There was no gate in the wall of J- in Jerusalem that was low enough to where a, a, a camel could get low on its knees, and if you took all of the things off the camel, it could barely squeeze through. There's, that's all just tradition and just made up this is saying apart from god himself which is true for everybody rich or poor there's no way that someone can be saved and that wealth does not mean that someone's on their way to heaven usually it's the opposite and they were greatly astonished saying among themselves who then can be saved but jesus looked at them and said with men it is impossible but for with not with god For with god all things are possible then Peter, well, it's about time Peter got in the mix here. He's overdue. Um, began to say to him, See, we have left all and followed you. It's like, what, kind of, what's in it for us? And, and I understand what he's saying. I, and he says, so Jesus answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospel's who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Now, one of the things I want to point out to you is in verse 29, look at all the occurrences that the word or happens. It says, there was no one who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father. He goes down the line. But then in verse 30, he uses the word and a whole different conjunction there. So we know that when we give, usually nobody gives up all of those things there in, in, in terms of loss. Like to obey the gospel, to to surrender our our lives to Christ and to go where He leads us, we actually lose. Not not in our hearts, like put them on the altar. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about actually lose those things because of our unique relationships and situations. Usually you don't lose everything. Sometimes you do. But when we do obey God's calling and we do surrender our lives to Him and follow Him wherever He leads, there's no limit to what His blessings are. And that's why He uses the word and. Houses and brothers and sisters. And Now, the Word of Faith teachers take this out of context and say that this is the hundredfold blessing and they'll they'll lay hands on your prayer request for a donation and pronounce the hundredfold blessing on this as if we needed them. And if they really believe that, they'd be giving all their money away, right? Common sense. But they don't. They're hoarding life's uh, resources on themselves here. But one of the things that Jesus is saying here, because Peter's saying, what, if, what, if, what, if, what about us? And that he's not being carnal here. I don't believe that. He's legitimate. We've left everything. What, what, what is it that you have for us? You're a gracious God. You're a loving Savior. You provide. You show your kindness. We've seen that. We've surrendered all. And those fishing businesses were not insignificant, especially James and John. It was very significant. They had servants, they had other boats, they had people working for them. It was not a small business. Uh, Levi, before he became Matthew, was a tax collector. They made lots of money uh, off the people, unfortunately, and that's why they were hated. So some of them were very wealthy. Probably most of them had made good, great livings, and they gave it all. They left their boats and they followed Jesus. And this is saying you are never going to be in God's debt. I mean, he's going to never, in other words, you're never going to outgive God. He's always going to bless us, and you know it may not be in the exact same way. I have two, three sisters, and I have well, because one's a half sister, and you know I always mess up how I'm supposed to word that correctly. But I have three sisters, and I have one brother, and two and two of the brothers have died already. And my brothers and sisters that I have in Christ, not my two sister, my other two sisters, because they're in Christ. That's amazing. When you get them in Christ and they're, and they're your siblings, it's just the best of everything. It just can't even get any better. But I have so many brothers and sisters. I have so many older women that are like moms to me, you know, and children that are like children. I wanted a big family. Me, personally. I'm not going to say Sandy. I'm not speaking for her. But I wanted a big family, and she's the one that kind of matters. Um, but God didn't have that for us. I wanted, a, I wanted six kids, something like that. I was the seventh child. But God didn't have that for my life. But I have so many kids now, so many children now, and it's so much better in so many ways. And so often what we lose by following Christ, we think that we've given up so much, and we have in so many ways, but nothing compares to what He gives us and how He blesses us. This family here, even though most of our family is traveling today probably or on vacation or whatever, um, they're blessed where they're at. We're glad where they that they're enjoying themselves and all that. But we're a family here. And, and it's a beautiful. It's a beautiful blessing from God. We are never gonna be in God's never gonna be in our debt in that sense. He's always gonna bless us with eternal things, with spiritual blessings. It's so beautiful how he does that. He wants the first fruits of everything in our lives: our time, our finances, our spiritual gifts, our our resources, our influence. He wants all of those things first and surrender those things. And He knows and He's honest with us that that's going to cost us something. A Christianity that doesn't cost you something is not Christianity. Because He says, if anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. We don't know what His plan is. We've surrendered all of that to Him. When those disciples answered that call, when He said, come follow me, they didn't know where they were going, for how long, didn't have any contract, okay, I'm going to agree, negotiate with him, none of that, I don't know where I'm going, but I know that wherever I am, he's going to be there and that's enough. That's what he has for us. And no one surrenders like that and regrets it at the end of their lives. They're never going to look back and say, I got the short end of the stick. I mean, if we only got heaven, it would be worth it based on the little that we know about it. But there's so much more than that in this life. He calls us to be faithful and to be generous and to put Him first in every way. And when we do that, He comes in and, and, and blesses us even more. He just wants an excuse to bless us. That's His Father's heart. That's how, what our Dave, our worship leader, says. He, he blesses us because He can't help Himself because He's a loving Father. So, And He finishes in verse 31, but many who are first will be last and the last first. I mean, to put Jesus first, in that way, we're going to be last in many ways in this life, but we're going to be first in the kingdom of God. As we And he's going to get into more of that later as we'll look at next week. Let's pray together. Lord, we just thank You for all that's here. We thank You, Lord, for just encouraging us to, to put You first in every way in our relationships, in everything that You have planted in our lives, Lord. We want to give back to You and to be faithful in being good stewards, Lord. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to, those of us that are married, to be the spouses you've called us to be, to be other centered, to put other people first, to walk and fulfill our marriage vows. Thank you, Lord, that our relationship with you models or points to our, um, or our marriages, Lord, point to our relationship with you. We pray that we would be great representations of of our relationship with you. And we thank you in Jesus' name, amen.